I was just waiting to get in and clean the boat, and I just heard the splashing about and saw the shark, and I thought, I'm just going to wait another hour or two. <laughs> I sat on the boat, not looking around, and I just got dumped by this wall of water, and just, I was leaning against the grab lines on the boat, and just felt myself going backwards and backwards and backwards, and I thought, okay, this is it. I need to get a minimum of 70 miles a day to get in in race record time and that was with about a week, 10 days to go and I'd only done that about once before in a race. We're back this week speaking to Miriam Payne, an absolutely exceptional athlete. For anyone to row 3,000 miles across the Atlantic, build as the world's toughest row is truly outstanding. To then do it by yourself in the process break the race record for the fastest female solo at 23 years old it it just blows my mind we're going to be getting into how this whole thing came about what sort of training she ended up doing for it how she dealt with day in day out almost knocked off a boat by waves getting circled by sharks i'm in absolute awe Before we kick off, I really need your help. The bigger we grow this platform together, the more exposure we can give to these phenomenal athletes. Let's get into it. Miriam, thank you so much for coming on the pod and making time to have a chat. I have been so excited about finally getting to talk to you. I remember I saw on... I can't remember I saw it. I think it was on the Instagram, and I I vaguely heard of this absolutely mental rowing challenge <laughs> across the Atlantic, so three thousand miles, four thousand eight hundred kilometers. Um, but I don't know. It just seemed off this like far off kind of fairy tale that was um, just so difficult to get my head around. And then up you popped, and not only had you done it. You'd broken the race record for the fastest female solo. (laughs) What is going on? (laughs) We've got to talk to her and find out how she did it, why she did it. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's definitely a niche sort of challenge, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It really is. You've been back, what, a week now back back in the UK? A couple of days, yeah. I've been um, slowly putting off real life and just travelling home, essentially, from um, the race finish. So, yeah, it's going to be quite an adjustment from now, I think. I can imagine. And and where is home exactly for you? Uh, So I'm based in East Yorkshire. Okay. And were you kind of born and raised in, in East Yorkshire? Yeah, born and raised in East Yorkshire. So I grew up on the farm here. Um, and then, yeah, that's just quite normal, really. <laughs> and do you think, kind of looking back on on perhaps your childhood and where you, where you currently find yourself, looking back on it, do you do, can you now kind of piece together bits and pieces that that have kind of led to you to to where you are today? Were you were you always very active when you were younger? Yeah, I was always a very sporty kid but I think luckily with mum and dad I mean my parents are so so supportive and anything that we wanted to do as kids they always try to support us to the best of their ability so I think that has kind of enabled me to be able to do this um my mum would probably say it's my stubborn streak but um (laughs) yeah it's hard I think when you look back on things it's hard to piece together exactly why it's probably a combination of a lot of factors but yeah I mean they always 
believed in anything that we thought we could do they were like well of course you can do that so I think that was obviously a big factor in being able to do it so and were your kind of are your friends when you were growing up pretty similar to you was a what, what did that look like no friends growing up um I don't know. I think my best friends are my friends from university and we're all a very, we're very different, but we have the same sort of core values, but um, we just love supporting each other in whatever we choose to do. So my friends are like, absolutely, I could not do that, but go you type thing. And they, <laughs> they just love it that I'm just doing this absolutely nuts thing and they get to sort of come along for the journey. But no, we're all quite different, but we all just... Um, which I think is probably why the friendship works quite well. Um, but they just support everything that I want to do, even if they don't think it's quite sane. But So thinking about Yorkshire, I, I was doing a bit of a, a bit of reading it the other day um, on, on the topic of Yorkshire and sport, because it was, it was one of those things that I'd, I'd always heard, you know, if Yorkshire was a country in the Olympics, it would be ranked like so. And so. I was like, <laughs> Is this actually a thing? Like, is this true, or or is uh, Yorkshire got some great marketing? And it's it's a thing. Like in 2012, like Yorkshire was ranked, I think it was 11th in the world if Yorkshire was a country. And then in like 20, what was it last one? 2021, I think they were like 15th or 16th. Like, got some mad athletes. Can you put your finger on anything about being Yorkshire? <laughs> uh, what creates this kind of amazing breed of, of superhumans? You know, it's it's a strange one that, and there's actually a lot of Yorkshire folk that have rowed an ocean. Um, there must be something in the water, I don't know. So this year, another <laughs> solo rower was um, Mike Bates from Leeds, um, my ocean rowing coach, Duncan Roy, he's from Yorkshire as well. And there seems to be a quite heavy Yorkshire contingent in ocean rowing as well at times. So, no, it's a strange one. Somebody, I think, should look into that, because um, I think it's just Yorkshire spirit and grit. There just seems this... Um, I don't know, determination from people from Yorkshire. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. It is really cool, to be fair, the, the country um, aspect of it. Yeah, uh, I mean, determination and grit is, uh, I mean, uh, a fundamental ingredient when it comes to anything that gets slightly difficult. But um, I imagine that it's very useful indeed when you are two months at sea uh, by yourself. <laughs> Yeah. Talk, talk me through how did this so university for you is glasgow yeah glasgow mm -hmm. and you mention there's a lot of rowers that have come in and around from from uh yorkshire how did you get into into rowing yourself so I learned to row in my um, first year of university. So I started as a novice. It's quite accessible as a sport at university. Um, my dad used to row when he was at school and he always, he very much sugarcoated it as to how much fun it was and forget, forgot to neglect the, the tough parts of it. Um, so I don't know. I'd always thought, oh, I'll give it a crack when I get to university and got very consumed by it. It's a very... It's a very intense sport, but it's a very re rewarding sport. Um, 
And then from that, I, I'd known about actually the ocean rowing before I'd learned to row for years and always thought, oh, that's pretty cool, but was always too young to even consider it a possibility. And um, then I, I think a Yorkshire team had cropped up on my Instagram one year that I was following. Um, and I loosely kept an eye on them as they were progressing through the race. And I jokingly said to my friend one day, oh, does anybody want to row an ocean with me? And um, some of them were like, absolutely not. That's the worst idea I've ever heard. And one of them was like, yeah, why not? Um, so the context, I was originally signed up as a pair. And unfortunately, she had to drop out in June for health reasons. But um, so we'd originally signed up together because um, well, I think she was the only one that thought I wasn't completely insane. So <laughs> it just, it just yeah. snowballed, really. <laughs> We're going to touch on this because I think uh, psychologically going in as a pair is quite a different kettle of fish to going in by yourself. Um, but it's interesting before we go there, it's interesting. You mentioned your, your dad was, was always, uh, he was into his rowing as well. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the sugar coating side of it, it is a brutal sport. I mean, one of my housemates at uni, she was, you know, you're, you're up at stupid o'clock every morning. Um, it's a huge commitment. Um, and so kind of in university, I, I remember reading somewhere that um, you said that this was on your bucket list. You'd heard about it six years before the race. So if you were 23 when you did this, mm-hmm. you're really quite young when you set your sights on this. And Yeah, well, I'd, I'd heard about it and I always thought, oh, that's my type of challenge. But it wasn't really a oh my God, I'm going to do that when I'm older, I'm definitely going to do it. It really did sort of come about by accident because one day, it, there's no sort of cool story behind it, unfortunately. One day, it can, the idea just lodged in my brain that day we were driving back from training and I, I think I'd initially said as a joke, does anybody want to throw an ocean with me? And then it just needled and needled and needled away at me and I just could not let it go. Um it, I don't know why it took hold like that, but I just had to had to do it. So it was I think, just I think I was uh, twenty then, yeah. <laughs> so up. it was purely a can I do this? It was a question of see how far I can push myself, or wouldn't that be a cool thing to do? How do you? How did you kind of work that out in in your head, and what was the kind of driving force behind it? So my thing was, I think I tried to reason it with the way that um, I thought, oh, am I going to regret not doing this? I thought it's probably not the thing, sort of thing you'd regret doing, but I thought if I'm like 80 years old and sat in my chair at my nursing home and I'm, somebody's asking me like about my life, I'm going to think, oh, I wish I'd done that instead of not. And so that's how I try to make my decisions now, am I going to regret not having done this? Because most of the time you don't regret having to do it or you don't regret trying because even if I'd started, I figured out it wasn't for me, I didn't enjoy it and given up from there because it wasn't right, the right fit for me, I wouldn't have regretted trying. But if I'd have always, if I'd have never given it a shot, I would have always had that thought in my mind or, but I should, should I have done that or would I have done that or could I have done that? Um, I think, could have, should have, and would have is probably some of the worst phrases uh, for us, really, at times. I could not agree more, but it's so rare 
actually come across someone who's like actually done that as in like the yeah no regrets you only live life once uh, if i've had a if i had a pound for any time every time i heard someone say that i'd be a very rich man indeed uh but then you see those people and they do literally, they're like throwaway phrases. So it is incredible to see you acting on it. I mean, at, by age 80 in your retirement home, you're going to have some stories if you carry on at this trajectory, <laughs> that's for sure. To aim um, to be the nuttiest lady in there. <laughs> <laughs> having done it all. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an incredible goal to have. Um, it's an incredible goal to have. And I think a huge kind of reminder, I'm 31 at the moment. Um, and yeah, just like looking back, what, over the last eight, nine years, if I have done kind of all those things, that I was thinking, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? It would be, things would be quite different right now. Um, so a, a huge wake up call, I think, for all of us listening to you um, to really kind of go out there and, and get it done. So from that, that point where it was lodged in your head and then you had to go and sign up for it, how long do you have to, to sign up and, and commit yourself and, and what does that process look like? Yeah, so um, we, as we were part of the Poet Time, we actually did a lot of research. Um, we researched for a couple of months um, and then we signed up in the August. So that was about three years before the race. Um so we've spoken to some other teams that have done it, got a bit of advice from other people and then, you know, put the forms in and fully committed to it from there. So then that three years, as some people take two years, some people take one and a half, it all just take depends on, you know, background and I think contacts and, um, you know, getting to the start line is pretty tough. But we've um, done it to coincide with finishing university. So it was essentially our gap year for afterwards. <laughs> okay, three years. So that's... That's a long time for, mm. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense to, to coincide with, with finishing university as well. Um, you said it's very hot, very tough. Why is it so tough? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a fundraising and, um, you know, it costs in the region of about a hundred thousand pounds to do the challenge. You know, you've got to buy a boat, you've got food, you've got to get the boat to and from the start and the finish. Um, there's training costs, there's, there's so much more that went into it than we originally thought. Um, and obviously with students, we don't have a lot of money. We're on student loans and um, you write into companies offering them sponsorship packages and lots of them in turn. Um, and we needed that for years. I mean, it, it was really tough. Um, you know, I think a lot of the people that do it later in life, they've been working for however many years, they've built up a good network of contacts in, in different industries. Um we didn't really know anybody in that respect. So, you know, you're just trying to get in the door with people and get a conversation with somebody to discuss the sponsorship packages is really tough. So we definitely needed that for years. I can imagine. I mean, that's a an amazing amount of, of money that you need. Um, and so how did you go about doing that? Just ringing up lots of different companies? Were there any kind of breaks that you got along the way or...? you know famous sports people perhaps that that helped you out and gave you a bit of exposure or was it just a day in day out grind 
It was pretty much a day-in, day-out grind. Uh, you were ringing people, we were emailing people, we were trying to get um, friends to, you know, have a chat with their boss and see if they were interested. Um, it, it was relentless and it was pretty mentally exhausting by the end of it. And trying to juggle that with uni and training at the boat club was, I think I sort of finished university and I was just like, wow, that was, it's been an intense couple of years for sure. Um but yeah, so I think when I actually got to the start line, I was just relieved and just so happy to be out there. So I was like, okay, I've made it here. I was like, that is an achievement in itself. I mean, yeah, unbelievable, as you say, just to, just to make it out there. And so on the one hand, you're fundraising. On the other hand, I imagine training has now taken a slightly different angle and a slightly different approach there. But again, you know, I imagine you're just building us up a bit by bit. When did the training and when did you start thinking ahead and and doing things differently in, in your rowing club? So, I mean, I'd been doing four years of intense training anyway, but about 18 months before the race start, um, we started working with PT called Gus Barton and he um, does a lot of training with ocean rowers. He's done it before and, and um, I think he's got a world record for it as well. So we started working with him in, in the gym, for the gym work before, and then I got the boat in June and that was around the time that I transitioned from pair to solo. So when I got the boat, it was just about getting the hours up as much as possible because um, obviously it's an unsupported race. So if something goes wrong, I've only got myself to rely on, yes, we can call the safety officers via satellite phone, but um, I, it, I've really only got myself to rely on in, in sticky situations. So it was, do you know how to work the equipment? Do you know how to work it efficiently? Can you fix it if it goes wrong? You know, a, a lot of those kind of scenario drills um, were happening in that period. So you mentioned it was from June that you got the news this is now going to be a solo effort so how how much how much time before the race are we talking there so race starts in 12th of december so it was roughly about six months ish okay like that okay so mentally things have now shifted quite a bit because well, I, I would imagine did they shift you quite a bit how did that <laughs> How did that change things for you? It was it was interesting. It was more the getting to the start line bit because we were still looking for funding at that point. So that was the biggest stress. The mentally, I'm going to row solo. I think because it had been so hard to get to that point initially, there was no way anything was going to stop me rowing an ocean. Um, there was talk, I mean... I probably could have found somebody else jumping if I wanted to, but again, there's nobody I knew, and also it's a long time to spend at sea with somebody that you don't know that well. So with that aspect, I knew that I was capable of doing it. Yes, I knew it was going to change, and a lot some aspects were going to be a bit harder, and training was going to have to change a little bit because I was going to have to rely on myself a lot more. Um, so then I started working with my ocean rowing coach called Duncan Roy. He reached out to me and um, that was really helpful because there, there was a bit of reassurance that what I was doing was on the right track, track. And then he was helping fill in the gaps of the stuff that I maybe hadn't thought of or um, just extra information that was really valuable. And so training ramping up. What does training ramping up look like? How how many hours are we talking? Is this just solidly on the ergo, 
smashing our kilometers. I imagine a fair amount in the boat on the water as well. Uh, pretty important. Mm-hmm. It's it's literally just as much as the teams can fit around their schedule. You know, obviously we've all got jobs as well, and we're trying to work. So I was working part time to try and give myself more time to do training. So the ergo work, the closer we got to race start, we'd be doing more hours on the ergo just to get used to sitting there. So some weekends I do sort of two hours on, two hours off, two hours on, or you do a three hour ergo or something like that. And then with the boat, we had the minimum requirements as part of the race that we have to do 120 hours um plus a 36 hour block so we had to do that in one without coming back onto land just so we were used to spending time out there Uh, and it was actually really hard to fit that in because the weather was just a pain to to work around so i was driving up to hartleypool almost every weekend and trying to get time off work from my boss when the weather window was good because it always works that the weather's good when you've got things on and um yeah it was it was just a full-on period it was a bit mad really looking back on it um yeah i I can imagine and when it comes to boats because yeah i until i saw pictures i didn't really understand how you're gonna be able to do this but um so you've got like a little cabin on on one end it's a, do, do, do you want to quickly run us through how it was how it was laid out yeah so i mean my boat's designed it can be rowed by a pair or solo so there's two cabins there's the bigger bow cabin um which if i was still a pair we'd probably rotate sleeping in there just because it's a lot roomier and then there's a stern cabin which is a lot shorter but there's a bit of space under the deck where your legs go so it's a bit smaller and that cabin's got all the electrical equipment so i slept in there all times because if the AIS alarm went off, which is essentially the radar alarm for a passing ship, then it would wake me up. So I needed to be in there to monitor all the equipment. Right. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's quite useful. <laughs> Knowing when you're about to get run over by a ship, uh, having that <laughs> as your alarm clock is uh, definitely useful. <laughs> so you finally, finally got all the training in. A hard slog to get there and this sense of you know, relief that you, you finally made it uh, and you can start off. So it's from the Canary Islands, isn't it? La Gomera. Yeah, La Gomera. Uh-huh. And, and how many teams were, were also involved in this? So there were 43 teams this year. So we all went out two weeks before we had to be there. Um, and then there's the prep and the preparation. So we have pre-race inspections. So the safety officers check through everything and make sure that we've got all the right equipment, that we know how to use it all. And then we sort of get signed offers ready to race. And in terms of like equipment and, and things that you you need to know how to operate, you mentioned you've got a... I'm about to get hit by a ship alarm. What other kits do you have to know how to operate? Um, it's things like your power anchor. So that's a sort, especially as a solar, that was really important. Um, it essentially acts as a sea anchor. So it's a big parachute that you can deploy off the bow and it essentially fills up the water and helps stabilise your boat if, um, you know, if it's too rough weather to row or if the wind's in the, in the wrong direction. Um, okay. And then... Yeah, it's like your chart plotter and your auto helms and all sorts of bits and pieces like that. Okay. Make sure you're going the right way and there's a bit of steering involved. Okay, all good. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've got all these guys. Did you all set off together? How was it? How was it all? 
Yep, so it's a staggered start. So 12th of December, we all set off and they usually start with the five and the fours and work them way down to the solo. So it's every two, three minutes, um, we all go off and out into the big player. <laughs> so to begin with, it must be quite comforting almost. You're there with a load of other people. Uh, you can see them. Uh, how long before the solo effort became quite a solo effort? Um, I mean, it's from the start. I knew I was. It it was very clear that I it was I was on my own. I mean, you know that everybody is experiencing the same thing. Um, especially the couple of days before the race, I was very in my head about it all. I was very jittery. I was very anxious in a way. But um, and especially with the weather forecast for the start of the race, we were told um, in the first weather briefing about four days before that it's going to be a tough start, especially for the Zolos. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> um, so we were basically starting off into a headwind, meaning that oh, if we ever put down the oars, we were just going to get blown backwards. So we knew it was going to be a very tough start. So I was, yeah, kind of very conscious of that and the fact that it was just down to me. For my little boat, anyway. And in terms of the sea, being out in the middle of nowhere and then not being able to see land, was that something you'd had much experience with before? No. So I'd never actually been out to sea until I started training for the Rome. But it's very, it's very strange out there. I, it didn't feel as big as I thought it would. Obviously, when you go on an aeroplane or something and you look at down and you're like, that's a very big ocean. But out there, it's strange. It, you can't grasp the concept of how big it is and maybe that's the brain's way of, you know, keeping you a bit more sane. But because the boat is so low down as well, you only have a horizon view of about seven miles. But then if you've got waves or they're big waves, they're blocking a lot of that view as well. So you really only feel, and it all looks the same. So you really only feel like you can see a mile around you, even though it's maybe seven. So you, I just very much felt like I was in my own little bubble and my own little world. Just a blissful ignorance of, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, I'm just going to forget about it. I'm not, I'm, you know. Just don't just, zoom out on the chart plotter. Yeah, exactly. God, there was a stat. What was the stat? You shared a stat. That was it. So in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, you're closer to the people in the space station than you are to people on land. And my mind just exploded. I just (laughs) couldn't calculate the enormity of it. And just, I mean, no, I'm just sat firmly on dry land. But it is a terrifying thought. Does that ever crop into your, you know, pop up in, in your mind, especially when things got rough? how kind of isolated or that sense of isolation or you were always just in your bubble as you say uh it's a strange one i think that i was surprised how that i wasn't more scared at times i think the first time i was probably scared was getting in to clean the boat for the first time i mean i had seen a shark before that but i think just the enormity of okay it's a very deep ocean like i don't really like when i can't touch see the bottom or touch the bottom of deep bodies of water and even though i had my harness and line and i knew logically nothing would happen to me it was the case of 
I don't, I don't know what it was. I think the enormity of that's, that's a very deep body of water. And so I got in and I had to just get out for a breather because I was like, okay. And it was the most exhilarating experience. I actually loved getting in to clean the bottom of the boat in the end, but that was very scary. <laughs> and then the last week was quite terrifying because it was quite rough. Um, but I was surprised that I wasn't more scared. I don't know. I haven't really had a chance to catch up with the other rowers yet and see, see their thoughts, but... Uh, yeah, I definitely thought I would be more scared. How did you go about, or, or where did you find that sense of calm? Was it purely that everything was pretty new? As you say, you'd never been out that deep. Um, how how did you go about processing all of that that, that gave you that, that sense of calm? I... That's some, I'm not sure of that actually. I guess maybe it's a case of my training's obviously paid off. Um, I virtually, I guess in the in the preparation, I probably did all that crisis planning and that. I think that especially the couple of days before the race, I was thinking every single thing that could possibly go wrong and every single scenario that I could that might kill me. <laughs> so maybe it was a case of okay, I've already thought the worst in my head and it seemed to be going okay. So this isn't worse than what you've already thought could happen. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure on that. I, I I would like to say it's because I've done my training and my mental training right, but I, I'm not sure, to be honest. It's interesting you mentioned mental training. Is that something that you did a lot of? Not actively, because I think it's very hard to do specific mental training. I think it's little bits and pieces in everyday life, you know, like the really tough training sessions, just pushing yourself that extra 1% or, you know, doing an extra rep or two here and there or thinking, oh, I'll do a little bit extra stretching today, even though you can't be bothered or instead of just lying in 10 more minutes in bed. I think it's little extra things in everyday life you can just make you know test your brain a bit more but um i think to actively i think it's actively quite hard to do specific mental training i think it's yeah i think a lot of the gym training and the training in the boat was was important because that was replicating more what it was going to be like at sea and but there's only so much you can prepare for being at sea in a little ocean rowing boat because you just can't replicate it on the coast or at home yeah, the only training for that is, is doing it. It's interesting that you mentioned this. I'm 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 hearing competitiveness to a certain extent <laughs> of what you say. This uh, this mental resilience. This I'm going to do one rep more in the gym. Have you always been very competitive? Yes. Yeah, I am quite a competitive person. I'm just laughing because if you ask my mum, she'd say she's the most competitive person ever. But yeah, in, uh, in some aspects, I am very competitive, yeah. And where does that, where do you think that sense of competition comes from? I don't actually know, to be honest. Um, my mum or dad aren't particularly competitive, I'd say. I think I've just... I think I've just always had it, to be honest. It's just something I was born with and it's just something I'm stuck with. <laughs> okay. So now it makes sense. As you say, you did solid preparation. So you were comfortable with your physical abilities, which gave you a certain sense of calm there. Um, going back to your story about having to clean the boat and having a shark circling you, how often do you have to clean your boat? 
Uh, well, as much as possible, because you get um, quite a lot of growth on the bottom, and okay. it's amazing how much that slows you down. But mm-hmm. my issue was that was the most frustrating thing that I didn't always feel safe enough to get in. Um, so I was only able to clean the boat properly three times. And I think especially in the beginning, I think the first time I got to clean the boat was New Year's Eve. Um, so I'd set off on the 12th of December, so that was a good gap. And then after that, it was 20 days before I could clean the boat up um, properly again. And when you can see your speed dropping, even though you're trying as hard as you can, but then you look at the wave conditions and you think, if I get in there, I'm going to get knocked against the boat. Like I could... I could hit my hairs and get knocked out, especially as a solo. You've got nobody to be a lookout and pull you in if things get a bit hairy. So I was very conscious of that, of my mortality in that respect of getting in and cleaning the boat. So I wish I could have got in a lot more. Ideally, it would have been every week, every 10 days, but it it was just impossible sometimes. It's also, you're rowing all day. And so, I mean... How easy is it to get in and out of the boat? I imagine you've got to pull yourself out and your arms are going to be killing you after rowing all day. Was that was so, that a real threat that you're just going to be too tired to be able to pull yourself back into the boat? No, because I mean if you're if you've got the if you can row then you can get back in the boat. They are to be fair, they are not the easiest to get back in, but rowing is a mainly legs dominant sport although in ocean rowing it is a bit more heavy on the shoulders and arms just because of the the way you're getting thrown about on the waves um so it's definitely not a graceful get in and out of the boat um but it's always fine you can always manage it um but yeah it's not easy to be fair (laughs) okay so yeah this boat cheating sounds like an absolute nightmare were there any other moments where you were you mentioned this shark. To me, that's absolutely terrifying. Uh, I, I, maybe it's because I did you. I don't know about you, but I watched far too many of those like Jaws films when I was probably too young, and it's scarred me for life. Uh, was, were you more fascinated by about the kind of the depths, or or was there also a slight element of terror to it for you? No, I was. I was really fascinated by the shark, and he see it, it was quite. Um, it wasn't that big, and I thought he seems really friendly. So I was originally going to get my B-gun out, which is my data terminal, to send back photos and videos, send a picture to the safety officer and say, is this a friendly shark? Can I get in and swim with him? I don't want to <laughs> lose my legs. Like, is that, is that a thing we can do? But he, I, I didn't get time to do that in the end. But, yeah, I was just waiting to get in and clean the boat, and I just heard the splashing about and saw the shark, and I thought, I'm just going to wait another hour or two. <laughs> Hope he just goes away. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the last thing I want to be doing, cleaning a boat with one of those things, <laughs> cruising around. Um, now, being a solo rower, it is quite different as well to, to being with, with another person where you can kind of take turns, one can rest, the other one can keep going. And then again, you mentioned, especially going to headwinds as well, um, and, and, and sleeping. How did you deal? How did you deal with that? Um, and, and especially when you're going to, you know, a headwind whilst you're sleeping, you're what you're being blown backwards. Mm, yeah, that was quite tough, especially um, so because I think the transition to solo and you know how the campaign's gone and getting the boat, um, it's hard to replicate that in training and also 
because I couldn't get as much training, I would have liked to have get more hours in to have practiced the shift patterns, but I couldn't because of the weather. There just wasn't enough time. So the first few weeks were actually pretty hard. Just find it, figure out the right routine for me. Um, so the first night, I I thought I could power through more than I could, and I was like, I'm just going to try and row as much as I can until I until I really need to stop. So the, I think the first and second night, I was hallucinating a little bit. And I thought I was seeing like buildings in the clouds and like shapes and stuff. And I was I was falling asleep on the oars and um I, I didn't know sleep rowing's a thing. So I was literally just like <laughs> felt like a zombie, just going back and forward. I thought I'll just close my eyes while I while I row and hope that's something. And I quickly realised that th- this just wasn't sustainable. I needed to just figure out a way that I could work through a bit more. So in the beginning I was trying to do sort of a five hour block from midnight of sleep and then three on one off during the day, but that just wasn't working for me. And I eventually settled into a routine of, okay, if you can get 15 hours in during the day with little, as minimal rest as possible. And then from midnight, you can get a long block of sleep. So that, that isn't very typical for ocean rowers, but it's what worked for me. So sometimes, um, I would be able to get eight hours of sleep in, which is amazing. But the 15 hours that I would do in the day would be pretty much straight through. But that was seemed to be what worked for me because I really struggled with a boat broken sleep. Um, and even then, with the eight-hour block, I getting up in the morning was the hardest thing in the world sometimes. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, well, eight-hour sleep's quite nice, but pretty rare i would imagine throughout your your journey but from a recovery perspective as well and doing 15 hours kind of back to back um yeah the let's talk blisters how how bad are we talking blisters actually were i think i had one and then my hands toughened up. So the first couple of days, my hands were just, they were red hot spots. So, I mean, that's part of the training, toughening your hands up as well. But um, when I say hot spots, it's not quite blisters, but they just hurt like they are blistering. So the first couple yeah. of days, my hands, it's all right once you're going and you get going and you get your hands warmed up a bit. But anytime you put the oars down or getting up in the morning, that, that first couple of strokes are just like, you just feel pain <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> But luckily, after I got the first week or two out of the way, um, my hands got used to it. But towards the end of the row, especially when it was slow conditions or when I was rowing a lot more harder because the record was in jeopardy, my joints and I think sort of the tendons in my fingers were, were very sore in the end. But blisters were kind of I, I, luckily okay. I've heard some pretty horrible stories as well about the contact point with the seat. Did you manage to um, survive unscathed? Luckily, yes. I think the key to that is variety of different seat pads and just <laughs> loose shorts. But yeah, I've also heard from some horror stories from some of the rowers this year as well. <laughs> luckily, and then, you know, just keep good hygiene practice with that and should be okay. But yeah. Good hygiene. I mean, on the topic of hygiene, it must be quite tricky out there because... So in in the boat, you've got a certain amount of kind of desalination that it that it does for you, and mm-hmm. then you've got to carry your own amount of water for what is it a, a few days just in case that breaks down, right? Yeah. So basically, you know, hygiene is just pure kind of salt water. 
Um, did that did that cause any problems or kind of irritation for you at all? So then, no, we didn't wash with salt water at all because that would okay. you don't want salt sauce at all. So yeah, the desalination unit's pretty good, and luckily because I was a solo. Um, I had a bit more leeway with that. So they do use up quite a lot of power. So like the four and especially the five man teams do have to be quite careful with their power consumption. So I would make about 10 litres of water a day, um, often less if I if I didn't need it. So I'd probably have about five for um, drinking and I'd always want a bit reserved in case it was, you know, it was a cloudy day the next day and my solar panels weren't charging well or, you know, like in case extra in case of emergencies. Um, so yeah, I would be washing with fresh water. Um, so I would have like a proper wash with soap and fresh water every, uh, it depended on conditions a lot. It would be every, ideally every three days, but sometimes it could be a lot longer. And then if I was really salty, it would just be like a baby wipe wash after the end of shift um every day so um yeah i mean there was some i think there was one day it was really rough where or one week where it was really rough i don't think i had a proper wash for about 10 days and it was just baby wipes so that was pretty grim i think it was one of those days i was getting just crashed with waves all the time so i was like there is there is no point because i'm just going to get clean to just get salty again um so <laughs> that wasn't a very enjoyable 10 days but i can yeah i yeah. dread to think uh talking about getting crashed around by by waves so it, all the kit on your on your boat is kind of strapped down. If there's a wave that comes across, is there you know a risk of things being ripped off? I mean, talk to me about capsizing, for example. That especially when you're asleep sounds absolutely mm. terrifying. Yeah, so I was very lucky I never capsized, but there were some very close calls. But everything, so it, it's hatches shut at all times. Um, only when you're getting in and out of the cabin it is not worth the risk because you don't want to risk not self-writing. The boat boats are designed to roll back up as long as you keep an eye that you got all your hatches shut. So the oars um, are obviously out on deck, so they're strapped on the lanyard so they don't go overboard. And, you know, you water bottles, you have a lanyard to clip it on so you try and not lose anything. Um but yeah, if it was the capsize, I'd definitely rather be in the cabin. I think I woke up from a nap one day and I just got like slammed into the chart plotter. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this is uh, this is a close one. Apart from making a mess of the cabin, luckily it was all right. And I think I bashed my head a bit, but that was fine. But in the last week, it, there was a couple of close calls as well. And in the last week especially, it was, it was very, there were big waves, but also... So coming from different directions and it was it was just very turbulent to see. It was very strange. And there was a lot of times it would sort of step up to the wave or it would be a quite big swell. But then sometimes you'd get a rogue wave or just a really steep wave come out of nowhere and you just think, this, this is the moment I'm going swimming. And you just pray that it would wash over you or it would just break at a different point. But I think one time I'd sat down, I think it was about a week before the finish. I thought, it's a bit rough, but I'll just have... One last wash before I get in. I know it's going to be a tough week, but I'll feel better. And I was just putting my stuff away. I was sat on the boat, not looking around. And I just got dumped by this wall of water. And just, I was leaning against the grab lines on the boat and just felt myself going backwards and backwards and backwards. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is it. And um, 
Luckily, it was okay, but the boat sort of stayed, the gunnels all filled with water and it stayed on its side for a bit. And I thought, if another rogue wave comes, then I, I am going swimming. But it was fine. But that, that terrified me a bit, that, because, um, yeah, you do become very aware of the dangers of falling in then, especially if you're unaware and you're not holding on to something. My thought was yeah. always, if you fall in and you're not holding on to something, then... And you don't, and you lose a disorientation of where the boat is. I could get my smashed against the boat and my head hit because the power. You're very aware of the power of the water out there as well. It's it's, it's quite insane in some respects. And were you wearing? I mean, talking about smashing your head, were, were you wearing a helmet at all? Well, I imagine it's probably a bit of a pain in the ass to be wearing a helmet. No, we weren't wearing a helmet, but it was. Um, it was uh harness and line on at all times because okay in case you did fall in because yeah yeah if you fall in and you're not attached you are gone yeah yeah not an ideal situation at all um no. in, in terms of because i saw your your before and after photo you're looking very tanned in the after so there's <laughs> kind of assumption i was like i don't you know okay you've got terrible ways but um it's probably nice and warm but it must have been pretty cold out there as well. Like, what, what was the kind of temperature like that you were facing? Um, it was very hot during the day. So especially in the first, uh, in the beginning of the race, it was about 22 plus-ish degrees. And then as I got closer to the Caribbean, it got a lot hotter. Some days it was about 34 degrees. I think I clocked it at 36 in one of the hottest oh, days. God. And that was pretty horrible but at night it was very cold um especially in the first half and i underestimated a bit how cold it would be so i wish i'd taken um an extra layer or two and i think especially when you're tired as well you feel the cold a lot more yeah and then around christmas time we had some quite big waves and they were beam on so they're coming sideways onto the boat so if they broke on the boat i would just get splashed and then every time you get hit with water especially when it's dark you've not got the sun to heat you up got very cold then so in the beginning i just absolutely hated rowing at night and i think that's partly how the shift pattern came up of row till midnight get a long block of sleep during the night because the less i have to row at night the more fun for me yeah no completely understandable mm. and when it came to kind of recovery you mentioned you know really stiff joints uh <laughs> Are very understandable. Did you have any any tricks or things you'd learned in your in your training to kind of heal you up and and get you ready for the following day? Um, there wasn't really a lot to do other than stretch a bit. So it's just stretching out the hands. Um, but pretty much as soon as I was off shift, I was just asleep and I was out like a light. So there's not a lot you can do other than eat as well as you can um, and just try and get sleep where you can it is the case of not faffing about anything that's not essential and doesn't need to be done especially in the end just didn't get done yeah mentioning the eating so you're burning about five thousand calories a day how did you go about fitting that amount of uh, that amount of calories and what kind of what did that food look like yeah, the food was an interesting one. So I was, so we had budget 60 calories per kilo of body weight a day. So for me, that was about 4,380. Um, so 
I had two and a half thousand calories in freeze-dried food a day, so that it was in three ration packs. So for context, you just top it up with a bit of water and wait for it to rehydrate. And then the other 1,800 or so was in snack packs. So that was things like chocolate bars, breakfast bars, sweets, and things like that. So it's the key thing that the safety officer says is that you've got to want to eat it. You could have the most nutritious snack packs in the world, but out there, your taste buds change, and also because you're so tired, you just need stuff that's easy to eat. So it's better to have chocolate sweets and crisps rather than <laughs> a granola mix that you're not going to eat or you're going to hate to eat because it's a big morale boost as well. Um, but the freeze-dried food, I really struggled in, and I think that's why the first couple of weeks of the race were a bit slower for me than I would have liked because it, it just made me feel quite ill. Um I'd be in it and even the thought of it, I think it became a mental thing um, after a couple of weeks, the thought of it would just make me sick. So I'd be going to eat it and I'd just be like, because <laughs> you'd feel sick or you'd feel quite a lot of heartburn. So then I eventually figured out that um, I started taking, I can't, I can't remember the tablet called, but it's essentially given to, I think, patients that are a lot, on a lot of painkillers and it lines the stomach and helps protect it. And that helped a lot in the end. Um, but in the beginning, I think I I'd eat about one and a half um, packs of the of the freeze dried packs, and um, so that was a bit of a struggle in the beginning because uh, also you're rowing, you've not got enough energy or as much energy as you need. But if you feel ill while you're rowing as well, it's a lot harder to put the power down. Yeah, I can imagine, and I mean, you definitely don't want to be in a calorie deficit. Had you trained or tried some of these like ration packs before you um, before you went out and started it? Yeah, I tried as much as I can. Um, but then there's also that aspect of budget and they do cost a lot. So, and yeah. um, especially with the funding being so tight, I do, if I had more money or if I did it again, I would try my hardest to get extra funding to test a bit more. But I, I tested out every meal that I had. Um, so I'd eaten them all beforehand and thought, oh, I like this. Uh, I tried them out in training. But also, you just don't know as well. Your taste buds change out there. Some meals I liked in the beginning, I hated in the middle, and I lo- and I loved again in the end. Some meals I just didn't like throughout. Some meals, it just changes. I loved in the beginning, and then I just hated after two. Or some I like every other one. It, it, and some were okay hot, and some were nice or cold. It was just, it was a very strange one. What was your What was your go to kind of? guilty pleasure out there that that got you through when you needed it most my my go-to so every 500 miles um i had a treat of um a chocolate orange a can of iron brew a a tin tinned fruit so it'd be tinned peaches or something like that and i think i think at one point it was the only thing that was was getting me through the thought of that it's something so simple but um yeah when i knew i'd hit those milestones i would be like diving for it straight away (laughs) <laughs> so you must have had like i mean even though they're freeze-dried it's 60 days well you probably would have had to take more of that because you don't know exactly how long you're gonna be out there for so, so race what, half rules, your boat is, mm. yeah so race rules we had to budget for 85 days um minimum wow. and then a portion of that so i think 17 days so 25 percent. so i think that was 17 days or something in the end had to be wet rations so they're a lot heavier as well so that's for situations in case we lose power and we can't make water or something like that right. and 
we've got enough time on it and god forbid that wasn't fixable we've got enough time to get rescued or something essentially um so yeah it was um uh the hatches so the little if you've seen from the pictures of the boats the little red hatches on the deck were all filled with food so I mean, towards the end of the race it was nice because i'd, I'd eaten some of the weight that um made it a little bit lighter <laughs> I'm going to say, you'd be blind by the end of it, although you'd also be knackered, so it's directly yeah, that's it. <laughs> balances out, yeah. Yeah. And so were you kind of in, in regular contact throughout your, you mentioned you had this this broadcasting thing, which allowed you to, to contact people. Were you able to speak to people quite often, or how did you go about dealing with that? Yeah, so our ways of communication, so we had satellite phones, so we had two of those. One was dedicated purely to safety officers, so they had to be turned on in a two-hour window every day. For um, They would call us every two or three days, um, or more if we needed it, Or we could, but they were on call 24 hours a day if we needed them. And then the other satellite phone, we could use how we wanted to call home if we wanted, or pass out to people to be able to message us on that and then there was also advice called began which allowed me to send back photos and videos or unused whatsapp but anything would have to be compressed so it's quite it's quite an annoying device you literally have to get it out point it at the satellite set it so that it's pointing at the satellite doesn't work very well if it's if there's loads of waves and you're you're wobbling about um but it was strange. Some weeks I'd want to speak to people loads and I would call home every day and sometimes I would call him twice a day and then other times I would go about a week with barely speaking to anyone. Um, it, it really just depended on mood and progress and all sorts of factors, really. And so would you say when you when your progress wasn't as good, you'd want to speak to people more or was it the other way around? Um, I think it was probably the other way around. It, it depended. Um, in the end, it was, I would speak to people a little bit more, I think, because I needed that reassurance that yeah. with, with a record on different factors like that. But in the beginning, when progress was bad, I didn't want to speak to anybody because sometimes I was just in such mood. I thought if I, if I ring home, I'm, it's just going to set me off. I'm going to start crying and I'm going <laughs> to, it's just going to be another yeah, it it was already a lot of overwhelming emotions when when things weren't going well or how I wanted them to go. So I didn't want the um, any emotional toll of calling home or anything like that. And so, at what point you mentioned this record? At what point did you realise that this was this was a thing? Did you already set out from day one with this in mind? You know, the competition is. This isn't a this isn't a challenge. This is a race, or were, or did, was this a realization later on during the challenge? So um, I always wanted to be competitive. Um, so I I originally thought the race record was actually forty nine days, but that was um, the old world record and a different route and things like that. So I thought that's you know that that would only be a case if the weather was very very good and knowing what the start was like and the weather forecast for the start that was going to be nearly impossible so my target was always to come in in 50 to 60 days I, I can't remember why I came up with that I think I just looked at um solos before you know there's not a lot, many women that have done it um but just looked at solos in general and thought oh, I guess 50 to 60 days is a good target you know people at home were asking me oh how long is it going to take you? I'd be like, oh, 50 to 60 days. Um, and then 
it was getting it was getting tough to do that. Just about before halfway, I was going to have to put in a considerable shift because it was getting quite tough. The conditions had been a bit random and whatever. And then there was someone among an hour-ing and I actually found out that the record was 59 days. So I thought, well, that's convenient because I want to get in in under 60 days anyway. Um, but... Yeah, it was a bit of a roller coaster because it was back and forward and back and forward, and then it was possible and it wasn't, and then it, it just came down to the wire with it in the end. Okay, so your your last shift was a big one, wasn't it? When you <laughs> seen this, <laughs> you were very close. Sure, a dice for Talk us through your last twenty four hours. So I don't think I've ever had as much of an emotional roller coaster in my life. So <laughs> I'm trying to remember it all in, in logical sense. So we figured out, well, our team had helped me figure out that, uh, so we were working off British time the whole time. I need to be in by 7.56 a.m. on the Friday morning. Um, so I'll go back a, a week or so. It was on track three weeks before the race. We got hit by this low-pressure system. Uh, no, in, I got caught between two um, weather systems and, long story short, the wind was in the wrong direction. It then dropped to zero knots and this went on for about a week. So the average miles that I needed to get just went up and up and up. And it ended up, I think, about, I mean, I need to get a minimum of 70 miles a day to get in in race record time. And that was with about a week, 10 days to go. And I'd only done that about once before in a race. But I thought, okay... If I don't give it a shot, I'll regret it. And um, the wind was building. So the safety officer called me about a week before finish and said, look, if you put a big shift in and knock off about 24 hours or something, you're going to have to knock off over a day in the next 400 miles. It is still possible, but it is going to be tough. So I thought, right, well, I'll just give it a shot. So for the next few days, I managed to get my extra miles in the bank, get above the average, and... um, we're looking at the forecast. The forecast was good. We were like, it's building. It's going to be 20 knot winds. It's We're on for it. It'll be fine. It'll be tough. But the um, the conditions just weren't as forecast and it kept dropping. So I think two days before, um, I just was not physically able to meet the average speed that I needed to get. And then it that evening I rang um, my weather support guy at home and I was like, this is just physically impossible. Like, I cannot do it. And he was like, okay, just keep going because you never know what might happen. And then 5pm that evening, um, the conditions just came right and something was going well. So I knew that by that night I needed to get 90 miles to go minimum and there's still a chance. So I thought, okay, we're on. And the same kind of thing happened the next day. And so the next evening, um, yes, yeah, so the day before, um, you know, the head safety officer rang me at lunchtime. And so I got up. Sorry, I'm trying to remember this in a logical sense. It's still such a blur with it. So, yeah, the day before the race, I got up at half six in the morning and I thought, OK, you're not getting off yours until you get on land, however long that takes you. And so the forecast was supposed to be good. The night before, I'd managed to get my target, like I'd said, and there was hope again. And I got up in the morning and I was like, where's the wind gone? It had dropped. It was like below 10 knots. I was like, this isn't great. And then it kept coming in and then there was hope and it kept going. So at lunchtime, um, 
I was trying to average about, two, I think I was on the calculator literally like every hour trying to figure out, okay, what speed do I need to do? What's worst case scenario? Like what, what is, what is possible? Is it going to be possible still? So I was, I, I think I was averaging about 2.7 knots and I needed to average 2.9 and it was just all going wrong. So I was literally rowing and like crying and I was like, it's all gone. It's not going to happen. So Ian rang me at lunchtime and he said, it's possible still. I said, I don't think it's going to be enough what I'm doing. He said, you're, at the moment, you're forecast 11 minutes outside the record. Um, and he said, it might come down to how much you want it. He said, there was a pairs team a couple of years ago that got a world record by five minutes. And I, I nearly swore at him because I was like, it's not how much I want it. I was like, I'm trying as hard as I can. And it's just not good enough. But I mean, to be fair, he was right. Um, and it was so weird. As soon as he got off the phone, the wind just came and the conditions were right. And it just it just seemed to carry off. So I think in the end, I got in with two and a half hours to spare. So it worked out. I'd rode about 22 hours straight. So I said to myself, you're not having more than two, three minutes rest at a time. So I'd got every single snack pack that I had left. Um, so it was easy food. So there was chocolate bars and everything. So I think I'd probably had about 10 chocolate bars in that last 22 hours because it was just <laughs> stuff that didn't take time to make. I'd... Um, I'd made some food up with cold water and in the breaks I would just scoff as many spoon, f spoonfuls as I could in about two minutes. Um, but yeah, I got in with two and a half hours to spare. That last week I'd gone on to cold food because of what the time that it takes for the jet boil to heat up the water. If you're doing that three times a day across a week, like that all takes up time. Um, but yeah, it was a bit of a roller coaster. I didn't explain that very well because I'm trying to remember the events in um, sensible order. It's such a blur. I can imagine, uh, and especially when you were just <coughs> rowing and rowing and rowing. But look, yeah. those, that jet boil or lack of paid off. Two hours. <laughs> yeah. The amount of calories you must have got through in those last twenty-two hours, smashing the chocolate oranges. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> and that feeling when you when you made it in so what's the landing like do you coming into a coming into a port onto a beach yeah so it was very strange so at 20 miles to go we had to call um safety officers and say that you know we're 20 miles to go so they could get things organized on their end and then because i came in the dark it was i think 1am local time um you're seeing the dockyard so the meet they say the media boat comes out and meets you um, probably about half a mile out or just as you're coming into Nelson's dockyard. Um, so it's the marina in Antigua. Um, but the problem is, because you've been rowing out miles out at sea for so long, you've got no concept of how far a mile is. So as soon as you see land, you've got that reference point. So the miles are feeling very long. And then because I was so tired as well, those last eight miles, but the last two miles especially, were the longest miles of the entire row because I kept seeing the outcrop of land and thinking, okay, it's, it must be round that like little corner there. And then it wasn't. So it was just like, okay, so, okay when is this media boat coming out to meet me? Because at least then I know it's pretty much finished. So they eventually came out and that was quite disorientating because of the lights on that. And I think I was just so tired. So as I got round at the corner... 
it was really strong wind and I was rowing into a headwind. Um, but they were shouting, they were like, it's, it, you've got like 200 meters to go, whatever. So the adrenaline kicked in at that point. Um, the actual finish line is up at a little bit of a thought. So all my family and friends that came out to meet me in Antigua were up there. So I could hear them shouting. Um, and then at that point, I think I was just purely on adrenaline and I, um, don't think I really knew much what was going on. <laughs> and, and then there's the safety officer lights a flare when you're at the finish line. And then you do that whole celebration. And then it's sort of five, ten minutes while you get into the dock and then can stand on land. Standing on land must have been a bizarre experience after two months on water. Yeah, it, it, was, it was strange. Because um, I forget as well, I'd not stood up properly really for 60 days so i mean the boat's seven and a half meters long then you've got the cabin so you've only got a little bit of deck you can walk on and most of the time it's not calm enough to stand and walk the two steps that you could make on a boat properly so you're walking along on grab lines like bent over so there's not many times you're stood upright as well um but I, yeah, I thought I was going to fall over the, for those first bits. And then as well, because I was so tired, I was just, I was just very wobbly. Um, the thing I found the first week or so back on land, if I was stood up or walking for more than five minutes, my back just hurt a lot. Um, I think again, because I'd not been stood up for nearly two months. Um, but it took about uh, 24 hours to be able to walk normally without you know, walking like Jack Sparrow. <laughs> but I find if I wasn't if I wasn't watching where I was going or, you know, if you're um sending a text or something while you're walking, I just end up just veering off in one direction and has to be a bit careful. But it came back a bit um quicker than I thought, but it was so bizarre. Yeah, I mean what an adjustment. That must have been very strange indeed. It'd be great to hear a bit about the charities that you were supporting when you did this. Um, so you did the, you were doing this for two charities uh, in mm -hmm. particular. Yeah. So my primary charity is a charity called Wellbeing of Women. So they're not very well known, um, but they do a lot of uh, provide a lot of funding and grants for pioneering women's health research. And I think when you say women's health, a lot of men are like, "Oh, that doesn't affect us," and this and that. But I mean, it, it affects everybody in, in society. You know, every every woman has a. a a man that they're close to or rely on in some way. And it also does a lot for the health of babies as well. So they do a lot to do with different types of cancers. Um, they've Some of the funding um, for projects has helped. Um, so that some of their funding helped find the link between HPV and cervical cancer. Um, there's things like taking folic acid during pregnancy to reduce abnormalities in, in baby's birth. So I really like that their funding is going in and re you can really see the difference that's, that's happening with that. And then my other charity was Mind Holland East Yorkshire. So they're a local mental health charity. Um, and what I liked about that is you could see the direct impact in the community around me and, it, and it's from where I'm from and they do all sorts to empower and support people with mental health issues. Two incredible causes. And, uh, mm -hmm. You raised, in the end, almost £18,000 uh, and outstanding, outstanding achievement. Yeah. And in the process, you've built yourself quite a platform. 
what's next and how do you think you're going to use this uh this platform that you you've generated um yeah that was very strange coming back to to that um yeah i'm not that's the golden question what's next um it's very hard to say i mean i've not even been back on land the amount of time that i was out at sea yet there's definitely another adventure on the horizon at some point um i think it's i was less than 24 hours back on land and i was googling more like all these adventures that i could possibly do <laughs> um, I, yeah, I'm quite restless since that, but I also need to figure out what I want to do career-wise as well and, you know, be able to support myself in that way. So I think I need to figure out the career option first and then as soon as I possibly can, I'm going to be jumping into planning the next adventure. But there's some ideas, but we'll see. I would love to row another ocean again. Um, okay. I'd love to, you know, build a really fast women's team or do another route on or maybe on another ocean but i'm kind of deciding whether i do an adventure that's completely different learn something completely new or do another ocean again next so still to be confirmed yes. well i'm much looking forward to hearing hearing how that how that develops so you just finished university now and mm-hmm. and on the point of you mentioned you know work supporting yourself any inklings as, as to what that that might look like? Uh, perhaps, what, what did you end up studying at university? Um, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I'm not really sure. I think I did a physics degree, um, but I don't think I'm, I'm not made for academia. Um, I don't think I'm quite suited to that. I just... I get bored quite easily, so I need something that keeps me interested. I'm I'm not made for an office job. Um, so, yeah, a few ideas, but I am very much in that phase of I have no idea what I want to do, really. But um, it, I guess that's exciting in a lot of ways because you're more open to a lot more opportunities. So it's a case of see what happens and see what comes up. Yeah, I think it's a very simple way to play it. And no one really knows what they want to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, especially straight out of university, you've got plenty of time to decide. <laughs> I am extremely envious of your current situation. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, coming back to the point you made, looking back where you'll be in, you know, from your, when you're 80 years old and uh, making sure you, you spend that time well. Uh, it's a great mindset uh and approach in in life so um no i'm much looking forward to see to seeing your your next adventures which i have no <laughs> doubt will be equally or even more ambitious than, than the one you've done with your uh, with this last challenge miriam it has been a privilege to speak with you i'm in absolute awe of your incredible mm. achievement and wishing you all the best uh, with your future adventures. Thank you so much for having me on. That's been really fun. (laughs) I'm so glad.